hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. <laughs> How do you not bring it up? Later in my script. I'm Emily Baca, Vice President of Public Affairs for the Ohio Environmental Council and a proud City Club member. Today we are Happy Dog taking on COP26 for the United Nations Climate Change Conference that took place in Scotland in November. Our guest today is John Mitterholzer, the George Gunn Foundation's Program Director for Climate and Environmental Justice, the current co-chair of the Climate and Energy Funders Group, and an active member of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. John was there at COP26 representing Ohio, as Cynthia said, as a sole civil society sector delegate. Say that three times fast. <laughs> According to John's calculations, and many others, if Ohio were its own country, we would be the 26th largest greenhouse gas emitter on Earth. John notes that the world must see at least a 40% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 to avoid the triggering catastrophic climate, to avoid triggering catastrophic climate change. So what does Ohio need to do to step up to address these challenges and play our role in the global fight? And what observations can John share about his experiences at COP26? We are here to find out. If you have questions for John later in our program, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's again, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. John, welcome to Happy Dog. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, everybody, for braving the storm and coming out tonight. I'm really excited to talk to all of you today. Fantastic. Um, I would like to start off the question with, or start off the forum this evening with, uh, Talking about COP26, what is it, uh, <laughs> and why was this such an important, an important uh, version of, of, of the COP? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So it's the 26th uh, Conference of Parties, which is an international law legal term for when countries enter into agreements or treaties. Um, so this was the 26th one. Originally, it was the lead up to the Kyoto Treaty in the hopes that the world would sign on to that. We all know that, unfortunately, the United States did not join in that effort, but the meetings remain. And then six years ago, when the Paris Climate Accord uh, finally came to a vote and 197 countries joined uh, along with the United States uh, in that effort, um, the meeting really ramped up in size and really became the place where the world comes for two weeks to talk about climate change. It had always been a place where world leaders came to talk about climate. But today, and I learned certainly in Scotland that, you know, NGOs from around the world, businesses, everyone who's working on climate comes to the COP now. Uh, this one was particularly important because under the Paris Climate Accord, the countries agreed uh, when they signed that agreement that every so often they would come in and re-up their commitments. And this was the year that every country was to recommit to the Paris Climate Accord and be more aggressive in those commitments. And we had all hoped in the United States that our president, President Biden, would be bringing a really aggressive agenda to Scotland. And unfortunately, oh, there we go. All right. Unfortunately, we know uh, that didn't happen. Uh, but it was a really important meeting nonetheless, because all of the countries were coming with a lot of pressure to do more. Uh, we clearly know the science. Uh, we clearly are seeing the results. I mean, I will point out as we await this super storm that this is exactly what the climate scientists tell us will happen. We'll see much more intensive storms. We'll see this kind of weather more often, more frequently. Um, and so it was an important meeting because the entire world was to recommit. 
and that was really um, why everyone was excited about what was going into Glasgow. Uh, we can talk about the results of that probably in a little bit, but the expectation was uh, that there would be far greater and stronger commitments coming out of that. Thank you for that download. I hope that we have level set for everyone about COP26. Um, John, tell us a little bit about the, the road to, to COP26, especially in the middle of a pandemic. What did that look like to, to get to, to get to Glasgow? And uh, then we'll walk through a day in the life at the summit. Yeah, so in the middle of the pandemic, I was asked if I would consider being a delegate. And it's a it's it's a UN process. So it is full of protocol. It is full of, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do. Uh, first, every, um, every organization that's interested in participating in the COP must apply to the United Nations and they must seek status. Uh, and that's the very first step. So I am the current co-chair of the Climate and Energy Funders Group. Many years ago, they sought that status. So they, they checked that box. Then they must apply um, to actually get delegates from their organization to attend. So that was the next step. So I said, I'm interested. I'd like to be a delegate. They submitted my name and they waited to see if I would in fact get what is called a badge, which is literally a badge uh, that gets you into what's known as the blue zone, which is the diplomatic zone, the actual area where the negotiations are happening. So that was the next step was would I actually get a badge and get access? Uh, and I did. And I learned that uh, early June. I learned that I had that. Uh, I actually got extra status. I was uh, asked, asked to be an observer, and I'll probably talk about that in a yeah. little bit, but that was an additional piece. Uh, and so just sort of think back to June, right? We were all vaccinated. We were thinking this great pandemic was about to come to an end. I was really excited. I was ready to book a flight. And then we all know what happened. And so there were a lot of questions. Is, is this event even going to go on? Are we actually going to have it? Are we gonna limit the number of people uh, from previous COPs? So all of that was up in the air. I didn't actually buy my tickets to Glasgow until the very end of September, which was when I decided that I was willing to take the risk. Um, and then as you can imagine, when you have 39,000 people descending on a city in the middle of a pandemic, there was a massive testing protocol. And so I had to be tested before I came to Scotland. Scotland actually required me to be tested officially on the second day that I was in their country. That was Scotland's requirement, not the UK's. And then every single day that I attempted to get into the blue zone with my badge, I had to show my badge and I had to show an official UK health app that told me that my test was negative. So it was it was quite uh, quite a lot. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot to get there. You first have to be a member or know an organization that has the status, and you have to apply for the status. There's a lot of waiting involved. There's a ton of paperwork, as you might imagine. We all had to agree uh, to be vaccinated in order to go to the cops so that I had to show my proof of vaccination. Um, and then one of the more interesting pieces is that then you become a civil society, was a civil society delegate. So I'm not, I was not an official, part of the official diplomatic corps. I was a civil society, but I was also a United States delegate. So I was actually part of the US delegation when the UN figures out how many delegates they're going to allow from each country. I was part of that decision. Uh, so one of the more fun parts was that I did actually get an official piece of paper from Her Majesty's government telling me that for a few days, I was an official diplomat. Which is pretty exciting. So I have told my parents they now have to just refer to me as a diplomat. No <laughs> That's funny. Um, 
John, has, has going to a cop been a, a dream of yours for, for a long time? Or is this, is, was this a, like, oh, I want to do this right now? Doesn't every three-year-old want to go to a UN meeting? I mean, you know, the very sad part is, um, yeah, for me, my wife can tell you what a big dork I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very weird, I have a background, I have a master's degree in European history. So um, for a long time, I wanted to work for the European Union. I was really excited about this opportunity. I've known about the COP for a long time. It seems really daunting to even figure out how to do it, how to be a part of it. Um, and when I became chair of the Climate and Energy Funders Group, they said, you really should do this. Like, you really should do this yeah. as the chair. Um, so that's when I thought about it. I, I knew about it, but I didn't know anything about it. And I'm not sure I know the full, I, I mean, I think you have to go multiple times before you really fully appreciate it. It's such a huge event. So that, that's a good segue into like, what does a normal, like, what did a normal day, if there was a normal day, look like? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I went representing um, not just Ohio and Cleveland, but also the George Gunn Foundation. So I, I was also a funder. Um, and as chair of the Climate Energy Funders Group, I actually was able to host a breakfast every morning for funders from around the world. So we just sort of let the word out through funder networks across the world. Uh, we had funders from Australia and Canada and Europe and Asia. It was actually really exciting. So my, my day was this. I would wake up at 6 a.m., I would go to my 7 a.m. breakfast. I would meet with funders from around the world. We would have sometimes a guest speaker. Our best was that we had Shalonda Baker, who's the, uh, she's great. She's a deputy secretary of energy justice in the Department of Energy. Um, she was one of our guest speakers. So we, we would have this breakfast in the morning. Um, and really it was about intel. Like, what did you see yesterday? You know, what, what was interesting? What, what do you know that's going on out there that we don't? Like how, so we just shared a lot of information. Uh, I ended up, finding out a bunch, about a bunch of events that weren't even officially listed because everybody else knew that they were happening. So that was just breakfast. Uh, and then I would walk over to the Blue Zone, uh, which was several, you know, several, it was a pretty far walk from where we were having breakfast. And then you have to go through the protocol of getting inside the zone. So I had to show my badge. That was the level of security. The next level was then showing your badge again. And your and the app that said that I didn't have COVID that morning, um, and then you had to go through all of the security protocols that you can imagine happen when you're literally running into diplomats from around the world inside a venue. Um, once you get inside the venue, I, I was an observer, so I actually had the status that allowed me to enter into low-level negotiations of the Paris Climate Accord that were happening as part of the meeting. It sounds really exciting, and it was, but they were very low-level meetings. Um, one that I went into was a debate about the font size on a document, and I'm not joking. Like, that was really, truly the font size on a document. Um, so once you're inside the zone, there are, there are all kinds of workshops happening uh, on every single subject you could possibly want to learn about from world experts. So that was just incredibly exciting. Uh, you have to imagine a venue of 25,000 people. I hadn't been with five people beyond my three family members in a year and a half, so that took a little while. Um, and then there's 197 countries. So just, just the cacophony of languages was just like, I just took, you know, I had to soak it all in. Um, and then it was just simply figuring out, you know, which workshop do you want to go to? Uh, do you want to actually go be part of the observation? And where do you want to go to do the observation? And I literally spent the entire, you know, from 10 o'clock, until 5.30 when everything officially shut down. Um, all, all of the official observer events shut down by 5.30. And then there were you know, funder dinners that I hosted and others hosted. 
uh, and there were fun to receptions. And I usually ended up in bed sometime between 1230 and one. So I, you know, I'd love to tell you that I was out party every night. I was literally um, doing events because I figured that that's what I was there to do. Um, it was a really packed day. Um, one of my colleagues said that it was like a year's worth of learning in seven days. And that's exactly how it felt. It was just like everything was coming at you and you, were, you had a chance to learn whatever you wanted to learn and soak it all in. But it was a lot. It was an exhausting day. Uh, it was an exhausting week. I can't imagine being around 25,000 people, right? And uh, even that would just suck the energy and then all of the learning on top of it and font sizes. I wonder what they decided. Uh, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about some of the learnings from, from your experience and noting that um, Ohio is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the United States. Uh, knowing that we've had a number of setbacks to clean energy policy in Ohio, how did how did Ohio did Ohio pop up in any of your conversations, um, and and what did you learn that is important to bring back to Ohio? Yeah, here's the really shocking thing to me: the world knows about Ohio. Like I was really surprised, but I had a number of times when I would say I'm from Cleveland, and then follow it up with Ohio in the United States, and the person would say to me, "We know Ohio." you produce a lot of greenhouse gases. Wow. And like that happened. I mean, I was talking to someone from Asia who said that there was an Australian funder who came up to me and she said, Cleveland, that's large manufacturing. You produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, don't you? And I was like, yes, yes, we do. So I spent a lot of time apologizing for our state and, uh, and saying, but, but I'm trying, we're all trying to do better. Uh, but it was, it was really fascinating. I mean, I do think the world understands um, greenhouse gas emissions better than a lot of us do in our own state. And we really are the 26th largest emitter. So it is important what we do here. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Um, but, you know, I think the, the absolute biggest takeaway I took is that all around the world, no matter where you are, whether you're in Mumbai or you're in Cleveland or Glasgow, everyone is trying to figure out how you decarbonize the economy. And how do you do it in a way that doesn't leave people behind as other economic transitions have? And, and there are places all over the world that have experienced the same kind of economic trauma that Cleveland has, right? We have done these transitions. We have not done them well. We have left lots of people behind. Most of those people are people of color. And in other communities, it's the same thing. There are the same populations that have left behind. And that was the really big takeaway for me was that we aren't alone. Like there really are people all over the world that are trying to figure this out and to get it right this time. And while it's daunting in the state at times, it actually felt really nice to know that there are people struggling with this all over the world and that they're willing to come together for two weeks in a location and really figure it out together, which is, which is really exciting and encouraging. That's really inspiring. And I, I think that, um, it would be it would be lovely to be in a, a room full of people that care about climate and want to talk about those solutions together. And I'm excited to be here with all of you tonight to do that. Um, I, I think one of the things that you and I talked about that brought you a lot of hope during during COP26 was the the youth contingent that was there. Um, and could you tell tell us a little bit about kind of the the youth that you saw there and um, how their voices were lifted up or not lifted up uh, at COP26? Yeah, so I, I was really lucky. My plane landed on Saturday of the largest protest in Glasgow. So it was a youth protest. There were 100,000 people that joined that protest. I heard uh, different, um, make sure I get that right. I heard some different calculations, but it was one of the largest protests ever in the history of the country of Scotland. Um, and I got to participate in it, which was great. My plane landed in enough time that I could get there and actually march. 
and it was led by youth from around the world. I then had a chance, we, we had a funder briefing with youth leaders from around the world. So a youth leader from Senegal, a youth leader from Argentina, a youth leader from Thailand, uh, and talked to the youth. And, you know, I was really impressed. I mean, first of all, the youth of the world are united. I mean, they know that this is their very future that is at stake. They're really incredible leaders. They're woefully underfunded and woefully disrespected. And that's really what I took away, was that these are incredible leaders that need far more support. Uh, but the thing that I am stuck with and can't get out of my head is, you know, all of them said to us, why is it that all of these negotiations are happening about our future and there's no official youth delegation in the negotiations? We aren't allowed in the rooms of, the, of, of these delegations. How can it be that you're actually debating our future and none of you are going to be alive to see that future, but we are. And I have two teenagers that are here, a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, and that, that is absolutely right. Um, so that, you know, what gave me hope was how well organized, uh, the amazing leadership that they're providing across the world. Um, it's really disappointing to think that we haven't provided access to them to make these decisions themselves, uh, to allow them to be front and center on all these negotiations that are about their very lives. Uh, and I've certainly made a commitment to think from the George Gunn Foundation perspective, how do we uh, provide more investment in the youth leadership here in Ohio? How do we really, because the other thing I heard was invest in us directly. Please don't give to two other organizations who are then gonna give to somebody else who then will eventually trickle it down to us. Give it to us. And I thought that was a very fair request. Absolutely. Um, it's sounding like the youth were reminding delegates over and over again that they had been excluded from that negotiation room, um, but they were they wanted to be involved in those conversations. And I think if we take a look back at the environmental justice movements and our climate justice movements, um, there are many voices, especially Black, Brown, and Indigenous voices that have been historically excluded from these conversations. Uh, and, and given that climate change is this issue of, of racial justice too, it's critical that these solutions uh, that these uh, visions come from communities most affected, from the youth, from, from these historically excluded communities. And so uh, how did that show up uh, outside of kind of those youth conversations? Everywhere, everywhere I went. Climate justice was the two words I heard most at the COP and that gave me a lot of hope. I didn't expect that, to be really honest. But whether it was inside the blue zone or at all the other events that happened outside, Climate justice was front and center. And climate justice means different things depending where you are in the world. But everyone was united around this idea of we have to make this transition different. We cannot continue to leave the same people who've been left behind behind. And I was really encouraged by that. Um, and it was really interesting to hear so many of those leaders. I went to this amazing session in the Inuit Nation. It was just talking about how their hunting grounds are disappearing because the ice is disappearing and that's their hunting grounds and the impact is having on their culture and it's, you know, really hard to hear, but it was great that they were present and there and had an official delegation represented. Um, you know, that was, that was one of my big takeaways, you know, it's youth and it was climate justice. And I think for a city like Cleveland, that's so very important. You know, we have so many environmental justice issues in this community. We have so often, as I said, made these transitions around a changing economy that have left lots and lots of Cleveland residents behind. The majority of those residents are residents of color. We have to do this better. And I think that was the other exciting thing was to start to see some of the solutions. You know, far more conversations about things like community solar, 
all around the world. How are we thinking about that? I keep looking at Tristan Rader, <laughs> who's our solar expert in the room. Um, but like that, that was a real, like that was everywhere. You know, it was how do we do energy and words I hadn't heard before, right? Energy justice, like really important. And I, you know, I've said this to many of you in the room. This is my spiel, but being from Cleveland, where Carl Stokes said on his pollution tour that environmental pollution is social justice was like, I'm really mindful in the position I said at Gunn that that's the legacy I carry uh, as I try to really fund this work. And it's gotta always be, I mean, that environmental justice, climate justice, as we make these transitions has to be front and center and always part of anything that we're working on to make sure that we don't leave people behind. I think if we're able to stay at that local moment uh, or that local uh, level for a moment, uh, we, we have some exciting things on the horizon here in Cleveland. So we have a, a mayor who ran on an environmental platform that focused on environmental justice and climate action and understanding climate change is a key competency of everyone in the cabinet. Um, and there are indications that the administration wants to hasten hasten the, the, the goal of reaching 100% renewable energy. So. Uh, was there excitement about that at COP26? Uh, what what role do those local actions play on an international stage? Yeah, thanks, Emily. It's a great question. So that was my, my third takeaway. So climate justice, youth, and then and then this. So uh, everywhere I went, what you heard was that national governments across the world have failed us. They're not moving fast enough. They're not doing enough. And so local elected officials are forced to deal with this issue. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, governor, regional government, if you're a mayor, if you're a council member, wherever you are in the world, you're on the front lines. And that was really interesting to just hear over and over and over again with this transition, right? That like, yes, we know there's this national thing going on and we understand that national governments have to do more, but we can't wait. So we're gonna just keep moving forward. And I just kept thinking about that with a mayor that had run on a climate and climate justice platform. Uh, I don't think it's divulging anything he wouldn't care, but the mayor called me before I left for Glasgow to say to me, please tell the world that Cleveland is all in and that we want to lead on climate. That was amazing. I mean, like, just think about that. That was, like, that was really a fantastic phone call to take as I was leaving. And I did that. I mean, I was really clear. It was like, come to Cleveland, work with us. We're all in. We want to be the place where you come and find solutions to climate uh, and really implement those solutions here. So it, it, it was really exciting. I met a lot of mayors, council members, um, local elected officials from all over the world who were trying to figure this out. Um, and it was exciting to think that we're in this with them in Cleveland and with a mayor who really who cares deeply about these issues. That's so exciting. <laughs> I, uh, I think that um, hearing, hearing that, uh, in terms of kind of those those local solutions and hearing that you know you were talking about Cleveland, folks were telling you about Ohio. Um, what are what are some of the other other solutions that you heard about, whether it be from the grant uh, the grant maker breakfast or the policy discussions? What are what are some of the like the key like we can implement this here tomorrow with a little bit of help? What what are some of those what are some of those ideas? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot in all of you in this room. I know so many of you are, are working on it, right? I mean, solar energy, right? Cheaper than it's ever been. Solar plus battery is remarkably cheaper than almost energy, any energy source. And we can do things like um, community solar, which really allows a neighborhood or an area of a community to own the actual energy asset itself 
You can then reinvest that money that that makes back into the community to do all kinds of energy efficiency or all kinds of other things around climate. Um, electrification of fleets, right? I mean, that is a huge, obviously Ford and GM with their commitments right before the COP, that was a big buzz there. It was, you know, the combustion engine is over, right? Like we have GM and Ford that have ended the combustion engine. Um, but what do we do? Like we've got, so there are all kinds of things we have to do, right? We need more charging stations. We, we got to do all of that work. Um, but that was really exciting. A lot of conversation though about mobility, right? And like, you know, not a lot, not everybody owns a car. In Cleveland, there are neighborhoods where 30% of the residents don't own a vehicle. So how do we transition the RTA fleet to all electric, right? How do we think about other kinds of mobility? Like there, that was the, that, those are the really exciting things that we can do tomorrow. Like we can start to do all of that tomorrow. Um, and, and we already are. I mean, there's all kinds of plans, and now we've got to implement those plans. You know, we've got electric vehicle charging plans. There are communities that have committed to moving their fleets over to 100% electric. There are communities where I live in Lakewood that have already committed to their buildings being on solar. There's all this stuff that is happening around here, um, and it's exciting because that's what the rest of the world is doing as well. And we're, I mean, one of the things I also took away, because I think it's easy for all of us in Cleveland and Ohio, is to get full of despair and to think that we're just not doing the things other places are, we are. And I think that we have to celebrate that more too. I think we have to really, and I thank all of you in this room, so many of you are working on this every single day. Um, and like, we need to talk about that more. We, we need to really talk about what we're already doing and how we're helping with this transition because there's so much good work happening here in Cleveland um, that rest of the world's working on just like us. I love that. And I think that, um, again, looking around the room, there are so many of you working on this. And um, it's exciting to be working together on, on so much of this. Um, and I think that that's, that's really exciting uh, for me. I will say that uh, another exciting thing is that we will have questions here soon. So uh, I'll turn to your questions in just a few minutes. Uh, if you have any for our panelists, uh, if you're here at the Happy Dog, you can step up and ask those. Uh, and if you are viewing from home, you can uh, text those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet those at the City Club. Uh, and, and, and thinking through, John, some of the some of the major takeaways, right? There's a there's a lot of news headlines that say top 26, eh, like we we made some progress, but we didn't make enough. And so um, what, what's your take on that from that international stage, right? We've talked a lot about bringing it, bringing it to Ohio and Cleveland, but on that international stage, did we hit the mark or did we not? Yeah, well, I think it's really easy to look and say we didn't, we didn't get the aggressive targets we had hoped for. But I think you have to dig deeper because I think you have to realize I mean, the most important thing I think that came out of the COP was an agreement by all of the countries to come back this year with renewed commitments. That wasn't in the Paris Climate Accord. That was not required of those countries. And 197 countries agreed that their targets weren't aggressive enough and that they would come back again this year. That alone, I think, was success. I mean, like, at least admit that you didn't do it and come back. Um, you know, the methane agreement, I think, is really interesting. It has great potential. How you implement that around the world is a question I have, but that's the largest source. I mean, <laughs> that is the most potent source of greenhouse gas emissions. If we can get methane under control, that's really important. Uh, again, the phase out of the combustion engine, something I honestly could have never imagined in my lifetime uh, is here. And that was the talk of the cop. <laughs> like, we're done. Like, the combustion engine's over. And, oh, GM and Ford aren't going to fight that anymore. That was really exciting and I think really important. 
lots of important things on deforestation that happened and came out of that. And we can't forget how important rainforests are in this whole fight around carbon. Um, and that was really positive. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing that I didn't understand until the last day I was there was that that agreement that they waited two additional days to sign, if any one country of the 197 objects to any word in the language, it does not go forward. So just think about the fact that 197 countries were somehow able to agree on anything, let alone to come back and continue to do this process. So, I mean, I think that that's really important. It, and I, it's crazy that that's the process, that anybody can veto a single word in the final agreement. But that's how it's set up. And so, you know, I, I think there was a lot of good things that happened in the COP. We have to go much faster. We have to go much deeper. I mean, there's no doubt about any of that. And it's easy to focus on that. And I frankly do that all too often. But there was a lot of really good that came out of the COP. And I'm, I am excited by those things. And and what about for, for you, right? Like we have the, the international agreement, right, that folks are coming back to the table. And that is so so important, and I did not under I did not know until right now that if one one single country said not not my jam, that it would it would not have uh, not have moved forward. But in terms of your experience at COP twenty six and and coming back to what's what are some of those things that you're you're working on? I know we've talked about some of those, but like, is there are there relationships that you're continuing to build after that? Are there uh, diplomats that you now have connections with that you're calling on a regular basis? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think what I, my, on that front, I think what excited me and continues to excite me is all the great work that is underway. And now that we have changes in leadership and we have other institutions that are really starting to think about this, I mean, you know, NOAC is going to do a climate action plan, RTA is doing a climate plan, we have Mayor Bibb, I mean, that's super exciting. I and mean, we now have leadership on this issue and we really need to just run with it and really make sure that all of these things, you know, we are a region that loves to plan. We don't have time to plan anymore. We've got to actually go and implement and get this stuff done. But we have the people to do it. We've got the expertise to do it. We can do it. And now we've got some real leadership and that really excites me. I and mean, I really feel like we can go and we can get this done. Um, that, that is the most exciting thing coming back. Um, I mean, the one thing that I will just say is the Paris Climate Accord is the international agreement. The United States then made an agreement on their reductions, but their agreement from the United States is state-based. So every single state has a target for greenhouse gas reduction that is built in. So all the work that we do at the George Gunn Foundation focuses on that target in Ohio. How do we get that done? You can get it done at just the local level. You can actually reduce the carbon that we need to reduce under that agreement just focusing on local work and reducing greenhouse gas emissions at the local level. There is a way to do that that keeps Ohio on its path towards its own Paris goals. And that's what I think all of us have to really focus on. Locals lead the way. It looks like we have one of our first questions. Hey guys, awesome, awesome job. Dan Mulford here with City Club with a question from Twitter, um, which has to do with one of these, you know, one of these ways in which carbon can be reduced locally. We know that public transit is a key tool of climate resiliency and that Ohio chronically underfunds transit and that Build Back Better would have included for the first time significant operating dollars for transit, but it failed. So we can't count on the state or federal government to fund transit. What should local leaders be doing to ensure transit is adequately funded? 
Well, that's a great question. And a personal love of mine is transit. And, you know, in full disclosure, my wife works for RTA. So, uh, you know, I, I love transit before she works there. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that last year in the budget, uh, $70 million went for transit, which is the largest amount of money we've had for transit in Ohio in a very long time. Let's not forget that my representative, Mike Scandal, is here tonight, has fought for transit every single year he's been in the legislature. Really want to thank you for that. Um, but I think we need it's time to start getting creative in Cleveland. I mean, we could, as an example, go to some of the largest companies in town and ask if they might be willing to offset their executive travel into some sort of, some sort of carbon fund that could then go into free transit. It's a crazy idea, but maybe it's not so crazy. These are the kinds of ideas that Cleveland needs to start putting out there that the rest of the world can start looking at. There aren't many places that have free transit. So let's, I mean, I, it's a great question. I want to crack that nut because I think we can do it. Um, and I actually think we can provide free transit. And then we've got to continue to figure out how do we fund all the other pieces of transit. I mean, the one nice thing that happened in the CARES Act was that transit agencies are fully funded for the next two years. I mean, we have, like, don't lose sight of that. Like, that is a big deal. RTA has money in ways that it has never had from the federal government. And that's equally important. Thank you. We'll take another question here, then we'll take a text question. Sure. Um, <clears throat> thank you, John. Uh, I'm Nick Um I, I have this question. As a funder, um, what did you come away from this you know, year of learning in a week um, of saying, if I see one more proposal of this kind, I am not going to pay attention to it. What are we going to stop funding? Right? I mean, and I'm asking this from a very specific way, right? It's not just the fact that, you know, there's a finite amount of money. It's not. There is money outside uh, traditional sources. But there may be things that we have been traditionally funding that are actually hurting us. What did you come away with? Are there things that you picked up like that? Plans. I'm done planning. Like, we have to stop planning. We plan and we plan and we plan and we spend millions of dollars on the plans to sit on shelves. We don't have time. We don't have time for plans anymore. Um, so that was, you know, I've always felt that way, frankly, uh, for the last couple of years as a funder. Um, I think that that is one. Um, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I immediately go to where are the gaps, right? We aren't funding youth leadership anywhere near the level we should be. Like that, that is clear to me. And I, I that's on me as a funder and I've got to fix that and figure that out. Um, so I, you know, I really keep focusing on, on the plans because honestly, I have spent so much funder money on plans over the last you know, 15 years of my career that if we had put half that into implementation, we'd have reduced a bunch of greenhouse gas emissions. I, I really think that what we got to get out of the mindset of is that we have time to plan. We don't. We don't. We've got to just go and we have to implement. I think that uh, one of our text message uh, or text questions uh, relates to greenhouse gas emissions and then uh, another one that somewhat relates to that question. And so the first is, what is causing Ohio to be such a large greenhouse gas emitter uh, state besides steel mills and agriculture? Uh, okay, well, that's a great one. So steel mills and agriculture, like, we are a manufacturing state, so we are an energy intensive state. We don't get any of the energy we use from renewable resources. So that's the problem. You know, while Illinois is out there passing a decarbonization bill, we're getting rid of our renewable portfolio standard and our energy efficiency standard. So what has happened isn't so much that we're producing even more greenhouse gas emissions than we have. All the other states are reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, and we remain in limbo 
bailing out coal-fired power plants in Indiana instead of actually investing in green energy. So that that is really the story around us. But we are a very, very, we're the sixth most energy intensive state in the United States. If that energy came from clean energy, we'd be in a very different position than we currently are now. Thank you. I, I think that taking a look at some of those state house policies too and, and making sure that you're contacting your state legislators about those is, is really important. Uh, and, and so uh, the, the other text question that I have is, do you believe that we can effectively address climate change in the United States without changing the way we practice capitalism? Oh man, that was a big topic of conversation, Cop. <laughs> and I'm, I, I don't know how to tackle that one. You certainly have to ask that question, right? You certainly, at least our brand, what, what we've morphed capitalism to be, right? Like we have to be honest because we're, we're happy to subsidize certain things in this country. We subsidize oil and gas in unbelievable amounts. Um, so I, I think that's a really important, honest, open question. Like what is real capitalism and how do we think about all of the ways in which fossil fuels are supposed to be capitalism, but are in no way capitalism. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a much bigger conversation to be had, but that actually was a very pretty popular topic, as you might imagine, in a world conference on climate. So you've addressed a lot of issues around um, mitigation. Um, I, I'm wondering in the shorter term, particularly for those neighborhoods that you've talked to that about that are uh, most impacted in this country, this city, and globally, how does the Gun Foundation plan on addressing that issue or working with other NGOs to say, what do we do to help those people in those neighborhoods deal with heat events, cold events, flooding, whatever it would be, um, which is a, a right now of issue as opposed to something we can hopefully gradually uh, improve. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have, you know, I, I I get a little tripped up on adaptation and the word adaptation because, you know, David Orr once said to me, what are we adapting to? And I don't think we quite yet know. Are we two degrees or four degrees? But we can build far more resiliency into all of the work that we do. And I, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up. One of the worries I have, we, we talk a lot about places for seniors to go when it gets really hot outside. I actually worry about what's about to happen here, right? You lose your furnace. Where do you go? Are we ready for those bigger storm events? Because that's what the climate science says that we're going to have here. So I think the most important thing is how do you build resiliency into that system? We have a deep community development corporation system in Cleveland. But are we doing enough to build resiliency to think about those things? We are having those conversations with the Gun Foundation. We are talking to our grantee partners who work at the neighborhood level about being more deliberate and building in resilience. I mean, Stephen Love, my colleague at the Cleveland Foundation is here. He and I talk about this a lot. I mean, I totally agree. We are having those conversations and certainly our new mayor is really interested in those conversations. So I, you, we've got to be more resilient. There's no doubt about it if we're going to continue to exist in a climate changing world. Thank you. How can kids protect the earth when they're small? And how can we keep building in front of the animals' habitats? Hey, that's a great question. So, first of all, because you're small, in no way means you can't change the world. You can. And I want to be really clear. 
nobody knew who Greta was a decade ago, right? And Greta has done more for the climate movement than probably any single human being. She was 15 when she started that. So, like, let's think about that. I really appreciate the question. And, you know, the other, we, I haven't talked much about this, but, you know, habitats, nature-based solutions, how do we think about resiliency and learn from nature? I mean, that was a lot of conversation happening at the COP. Those are all really good questions because we've got to protect those habitats. They're so important to the entire way that the Earth's climate works. And if we don't have habitats that are preserved in the ways that they currently are, those systems aren't going to react in the ways that we need them to in order for us as humans to exist on the planet. Um, I really appreciate the question. I don't think any of us should ever count out youth, no matter their age. They're really wise at times, much wiser than us adults. And I really hope that we continue to listen to them um, and really, really fight for them. I, uh, I would encourage you too to keep asking questions. Keep learning and keep asking questions. And uh, and uh, you'll never know never know exactly where you'll end up with those, but they're they're important and they're important to keep reminding all of us. John. Yeah. Um, first off, thank you for thank you for being here and thank you for having gone to Copper and brought the information back. My question is not so much climate specific, but you mentioned two things that struck a chord with me. One, you don't want to fund more planning. Plans, plans, plans. And the other was youth leadership was asking, can you fund us directly? Because our funding is being filtered through through layers to a level, I think, where people are being told what to do. Um, we're in a very dynamic, changing environment. How are you in the funding community viewing those changing dynamics? It seems like if you're going to move away from planning, you want to get more ideas. Um, and a lot of that is is skipping some middlemen and, and getting money to more smaller amounts of money to more people with with ideas. Sort of a long question. This this dribbles over into the arts uh, and probably every aspect of what funders do. So um, how how has COVID changed the way you are looking at funding things as a funder? Yeah, well, there's a lot of questions there. So, I, you know, like some planning is fine. I, I think the Sean, like the, the right question, and you're asking it, is how do we engage the community directly and better, right? And I, I do think that our new mayor showed us that when you actually do that, there's huge change. I mean, the way he ran that campaign, the way that every neighborhood was engaged in that campaign, I think that's a blueprint for how we do better community engagement. Because I'm convinced that this, I, you know, I'm one individual person. I can't possibly have all the answers. We need a much better job. We need a much better job on engaging people of all ages in this conversation. It's all our future. So that's one, I think, for sure. We have to do a much better job about community. How do we engage the community? And then when we do, how do we actually take what we learn from them and do it? Right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that I have learned is that, you know, so often we will ask someone to come to one meeting. We'll ask them what they think, and then like so you move on, and, and they never feel real. We have to change that. We have to really authentically engage people in a conversation, and then listen to them and start to do what they think is best. That's really important. And I think it's across all areas. I agree with you. All right. No, I think that that is. Um, I think that um, knowing what I do about Ohio Climate Justice Fund, that that is that, that right? Like listening to communities, hearing solutions from communities, and, and working. 
I, I, I think that is such a great question because it is a failure I see often. And we just simply don't engage people in a truly authentic way that then takes what we hear from them and makes that part of it, the plan and the implementation. Uh, our, our next text question coming in is, what is the role of industry in reducing emissions in Ohio? That's a great question. I mean, I think industry in some circles is, is driving emissions reduction. You know, and we can talk about capitalism, but there's a lot of shareholder activism happening out there. I work at a foundation that's an active shareholder advocate. And so if you look, I mean, I'm really interested in Intel, right? They've got clean energy goals required by their shareholders. What's that going to do to our governor and to our legislative, you know, our legislature? Are we going to actually start thinking about those kinds of things? I do think the business community has a role to play here. I think they have an important role to play. Um, and I think it's really important when we start thinking about the success of Ohio. Like you know, That's what worries me most about not having a clean energy standard. It's what worries me about not having these things that a lot of companies require if you're even gonna locate somewhere. We don't have that. Uh, and we need to do a much better job to then attract those companies. But I, I do think there's an important role for the business community. I think that there are important things that the business community can do. And one of them is to advocate for climate policy, right? And some are, but not enough. And I really hope that the business community continues to, to work with the advocates to get some of these policies that they secretly say they want behind closed doors, but aren't always as active in public. Hi, so, so I'm, I'm hearing all of this about like um, policy and statewide things that can't work because Ohio is Ohio. And and I'm hearing how much a difference it makes to have somebody like our new mayor run a campaign that is about community engagement and environmental justice and, and all of this. I feel like I like, pulled 300 threads from the things you've both said so far. Can you talk some about the role of democracy related to climate change? Yeah. Um, I know you only have like three hours more to go, so you know, knock yourselves out. <laughs> well, I mean, we have to all be honest with ourselves. If we don't have a functioning democracy in the United States, we will never have functioning climate policy. It will not happen. I mean, look at Ohio. We are so gerrymandered that no matter what we do, no matter what constituents want, and I know in polls we see that 70% of Ohioans want clean energy legislation, 70% of Ohioans believe that climate change is real, um, but we don't get any of that policy in the state house because our democracy in Ohio is broken. Our districts are so gerrymandered. We do everything we can to take the rights of black voters away, people who have a right to vote and yet are suppressed. If we have to have a functioning democracy to have the kinds of policies we need in place to solve climate. So I hope all of you are voters. I hope all of you do everything you can to be a champion of democracy you're here to hear about climate, but this is actually a democracy conversation. If we don't have functioning democracy, it's over. This is a, a good plug to make sure that you check your voter registration as well. Do that tonight. Uh, we always downplay the Rust Belt and do not consider us globally influential cities like LA or New York City. Can Cleveland or even Ohio have an influence on climate change globally? Can we be or are we are? Or are we a heavy hitter on climate advocacy? We can. We can. 
And that's the most exciting thing from, from Glasgow. Here, if you hear nothing else I say, we have the opportunity to seize leadership in the world and show the world how you solve climate by leading with climate justice. Like, that's our opportunity. Yeah. One of the poorest cities in the United States moving forward in a way that leaves no one behind in this transition, that is the opportunity before us. No other region in the world has solved that. We can do it. Like I'm absolutely confident we can do it. It will be hard, it's not easy, but people are looking for that leadership and I we gotta seize it. Like I want us to seize it. I want it to be Cleveland. I want three years from now the world to be talking a cop will be 29. Look at what Cleveland's done. It is a leader in this transition, and everyone from around the world is looking to us to see what we have done. We can do it. Heard on that. I, do, I, I have a question that's um, not for Twitter or text message, but um, for the last 10 years or so, the city of Cleveland has been engaged in Sustainable Cleveland 20, whatever it was, right? Um, in all seriousness, though, what is your assessment of those efforts? Um, beyond raising awareness and convening, what did we accomplish? Um, I think it's a fair question. I mean, I, I actually think we accomplished things. Well, what we didn't do after having a summit every single year was take everything we talked about and implement. I mean, it's the same old standard problem I see in Cleveland where we get together, we have a conversation about the problem, we contemplate our navel, and then we just all go away. And so I think, you know, we got a lot of new people engaged. There are a lot of people who are leading in this effort now that started at those summits, so I don't want to take that away. Um, it introduced me to a bunch of new ideas and concepts. Some of them did get funding. But we never seized on it. I mean, when we started that 2019 idea in 2009, no other city in the United States had ever had a sustainability summit. We were the lead. We had the opportunity to seize that and move on it, and we did it. And, and that's just leadership. You know, we just didn't use those summits in a way that then moved us from talk to action. That was what's missing. Do you think that we are now in a position to move those things from talk to action? I certainly hope so. I, I, I think we are, and I also think that we all know the urgency that's out there now, right? I mean, there's no denying the climate science. We know the urgency. We know how fast we have to move. I hope that that keeps us on track. But I do. I actually think we have different leaders in place. It's a different dynamic happening right now. I think that we have the opportunity to really do something different than we have. I think there's a lot of climate action plans coming up. <laughs> Dan. So time for one? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to speak, like speaking of optimism, can you speak of uh, what you heard just around technology change and just we're looking at, you know, traditionally sort of a political <laughs> argument against clean energy has been that it's too expensive, that it's going to hurt, you know, from an environmental justice standpoint. What you heard about how we can, how technology and uh, really the economies of this can drive, particularly for a place like Cleveland, the communities that have been left behind. Yeah, I mean, I so I mean, you know, it's, it's what most of you know. Right, clean energy is the cheapest it's ever been. In almost every case, it's going to beat every other source of energy that is out there in cost. Now, you add solar plus battery, and you get just absolutely amazing technology that is completely resilient, that allows for all kinds of things. Uh, and I think the most important thing for us here in Ohio is that all of these things, whether it's solar panels or wind turbines, require parts. And we manufacture parts.
I mean, yeah. I, like that is what gets me really excited. There are very few places in the world that have the manufacturing ability that Ohio does supply chain. and the supply chains. And so how do we bring in and bring that all together? Right? How do we, how do we really think about it? How do we think about electric vehicles? Right. I mean, we've got Intel making chips now. Like what are the other components of electric vehicles that our existing infrastructure around manufacturing can allow us to have the competitive advantage on? And I think that that is a very real thing. It takes focused effort and a state that isn't fighting clean energy, but actually working with those manufacturers to create that future. We haven't had that. That's what's missing is that state level leadership. And I'm really hopeful that those manufacturers really start crying out for that because that's our opportunity. It is a great opportunity for us. They're so for optimism. I just. <laughs> So my question is, how, how would you comment around people who talk about the, the countries that really are the impactors around climate and GHG are the ones that aren't actually making any changes and that whatever we do here in this country doesn't really have an impact. And if we make changes, we're actually less competitive. How, how would you... So I can do both. So first of all, like we are the largest emitter and you know, China is the largest emitter per capita. We are far and away the largest emitter. So like that argument doesn't even make any sense. I mean, we, we, we start working on climate. We lead the world. There's just no doubt. The whole world's looking for us to lead and that's our opportunity. Uh, and, and we are still the, I mean, we may not be the largest gross emitter, but we are per capita. I mean, just, it's, it's astronomical how much larger an emitter we are. I really get frustrated in the U.S. by this conversation about if we do this, then we're going to fall behind. Look at China. Look at look at Neo, which is their electric car company. Look at all the solar panel companies in China. While we were twiddling our thumbs and not paying attention to federal policy here that could have boosted our manufacturing sector and made us the leader in those things, China's taken it, taken it and run with it. So, like, there are huge opportunities still here for us to transition the economy in a way that benefits Americans far more than the current economy. And like I'm watching China take a huge chunk of that away from us because we just aren't paying enough attention and they're smart enough to see the future. So I, you know, that is just to me a false argument. There's plenty of money to be made in the clean energy space. And we need to take advantage of that as a country where the Chinas of the world are going to eat our lunch in our future economy. Thank you, John. Our final question for this evening. Uh, there was a, a comment that we need more delegates from Ohio uh, at uh, the next uh, SOCOP 27. Uh, how would you recommend we, we go about that? Or if someone were interested in that, what would they do? You know, that's a great question. I think that I've, you know, a couple of us have been toying with, should we bring a delegation to the next COP? Like, how do we think about that? There, you know, there are these protocol challenges. If you can bring a delegation, doesn't mean everybody's going to have access in the way that I was lucky enough to have access. Um, but here's the thing. If we got a story to tell and we want to go tell it, I think we should. Like, I think we need, like, I'm excited to tell the world that we all are in, in Cleveland and that we're going to do everything we can to leave. And I think we should think about it. Let's figure out how we all start representing ourselves in these big international meetings. Uh, and putting Cleveland back on the map for innovation. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for sharing.
shedding light on COP26 and uh, demystifying what uh, what you what you did there and what you learned there. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining us uh, at this evening's forum. Happy Dog Takes on COP26. Uh, we've been joined by today by John Minderholzer, Senior Program Officer at the George Gunn Foundation. Thank you, John. Today's forum is part of our Sustainable Northeast Ohio series sponsored by Bank of America and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, as well as our City Club of the Community series sponsored by Bank of America. We are all grateful for their support. Uh, be sure to join us on Friday, February 4th. We'll be joined by Desmond Mead, Executive Director of the Florida Rights, Rest Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. He'll address the battle over the soul of our democracy, what we talked a little bit about this evening, and how access to the ballot box has become the site of some of the most important legislative conflicts. There are only a few tickets left for that forum, so you can purchase those uh, at thecityclub.org. Thank you for joining us uh, here at Happy Dog. I hope everyone gets home safely this evening. Uh, thanks for those who are tuning in live. Uh, I'm Emily Baca, VP of Public Affairs for the Ohio Environmental Council, and this is the end of our forum.